Welcome to The Defiant. I'm your host, Tegan Klein. Today, we are joined by the all-around dev phenomenon, Natter Dabbit. Natter has become a household name across the developer community with his combination of to-the-point tutorials, live coding demos, and interviews focused on modern web development, Web3, AI, cloud computing, and more. He's always learning and experimenting in public. Natter is currently the Director of Dev Relations at Ave Lens. Today, he'll get into some details behind his journey into Web3, starting with the graph, decentralized social media, the devs building on the Lens protocol, Lens infrastructure, and he'll give us a mini deep dive into gasless transactions via Lens. But first, Natter tells us about what it was like being early to AWS before he made his switch into Web3 full-time. I've been a developer for about 11 years now. When I started at AWS, I have been really interested already at that point into developer tooling and developer, just being part of the developer ecosystem. And I had written open source. I had taught developers how to build apps and being able to kind of work on the infrastructure that allows other developers to build their own apps and their own companies seemed just really exciting. Um, this was also along the la- the same timeline that serverless technology was starting to become more popular, and they were rolling out a lot of new serverless services and things like that at AWS, and it seemed like a really exciting thing to work on, being able to kind of help build infrastructure that other developers could use to build out their own applications. So that opportunity just seemed really, really cool. And I was able to join that team and I was there for a little over three years. I learned a lot and it was a really great time of my career. Amazing. And with that, tell us a little bit about your Web3 journey. How did you get started and what initially kind of piqued your interest in the crypto space? Yeah. So I think that when I started trading and being involved in crypto, it was way back in 2016 and 17, but I didn't really know what I was doing or what was going on. I was kind of just speculating. And then a couple of years later, I was getting back into it. You know, um, we had that boom and bust cycle of 2018-ish. And then a couple of years later, um, getting back into trading and stuff. And the graph actually is uh, the token that I started doing research on. And when I started learning about the underlying technology, I started realizing that crypto is not just you know, there for speculation, there's actually products and projects and applications that people are building. So I started diving down the rabbit hole of Web3 after learning about the graph protocol and GraphQL, which is something that I had been using and writing uh, at my time at AWS. And during that time, I actually watched a couple of talks. Um, One was actually from Yaniv, it was at Graph Day. Uh, The other was Juan Benet. And those two talks really, really kind of introduced me to Web3 and got me really excited about it. So at that point, I was kind of bored at AWS and I was looking for the next thing I wanted to work on. And um, this was the first time I became really excited about anything in a long time. And after kind of looking around at the different protocols and, and stuff like that that were out there, looking for a place to work, actually, there was only a couple that really stood out to me that seemed like the combination of technology that I understood that seemed really promising and then places that would actually maybe hire me. And uh, I reached out to the graph and, you know, me and you ended up working together, but um, I'm not sure who saw my application come in, but, you know, Yaniv, I think was the, one of the first people I maybe talked to. I talked to you, talked to a couple of other people. And, and from there it's been, 
you know, I've been all in on Web3 since then. <laughs> it's been a fun, a fun time. Amazing. Yeah, whirlwind for sure. And maybe some advice you would share to someone who's in big tech, maybe looking to do a similar transition to Web3. I think that you have to kind of come into this space knowing what you're getting yourself into. Even with the preparation mentally that I had, it's still been kind of a rocky ride. Um, it's been it's been great, a lot of fun. I learned a lot, and I'm really glad I'm here. But there are a lot of ups and downs, you know, with all the regula- re- regulatory uncertainty. There's always going to be some really great thing that that's happening that day, or something really bad that's happening that day, and you have to kind of just be there for like a long term vision. And, and, and you have kind of have to be really bought into what we're working towards, because if you're kind of there just for the short term, it's going to be very tough, I think, uh, to stay during some of these ups and downs. Absolutely. Yes, you definitely have to roll with the punches and be comfortable in the chaos. Uh, and I think that you're probably one of the, the best DevRels in the space. Do you have any advice for others that might be aspiring to be DevRels in crypto? How do you recommend they approach that? I think the best thing that I learned that actually works really well, at least for me, is living by this idea of, of learning in public. And the more that you are able to, you know, just the more experience that you have as a developer, the faster you're going to be able to pick things up. And if you can publicly translate the things that you're learning to other people as you're learning them in public, then people really resonate with that. And that's, it's pretty simple. Like if you, if you just are out there learning new things and trying new things and sharing everything that you're doing, then that's often going to help people that are just getting started. Um, I think as a self-taught developer, I really appreciated all of the content that other people had put out there for me to learn and, and get my career going. And I've found it really um, fulfilling to be able to kind of do the same for work. Amazing. And what's the best medium for that learning in public? Do you recommend like a YouTube channel, Twitter? What would you recommend to people? You know, I think it's a combination of, of those things, but it also depends on what that person's kind of good at. I think certain people are excellent at video production. Some people are really good at social media. So I would say experiment, find the things that you're good at and really double down on the the things that you're most effective at. Amazing. And Chain Yoda on Twitter asks, how does Sir travel so much? What is Sir's formula for managing jet lag and quick recovery from DevRel travel? It's really tough to get used to that. I I think the, the key for me is trying to actually turn, reduce the travel as much as possible, even though I'm still on the road about once a month. And, you know, when I have jet lag, it is something that you just have to get used to dealing with maybe. I don't know. I don't really have a good answer for that. I think though just being consistent period will keep you consistent regardless of time zone or location. And just understanding that when you're traveling, you're probably going to get a lot less done and therefore try to kind of get a lot of stuff done when you're not traveling. Totally. And one hack I have for jet lag is just before you start traveling to wherever you're going, start thinking about that time zone and maybe go to sleep a little bit earlier if they're already sleeping and then vice versa when you're coming back, that can kind of help you hack it. And then, yeah. And then Kevin Owaki on Twitter asks, do you build, how do you build stuff so fast and what's your secret? So some things come to me fairly quickly and easily and I'll just jump into a code base and it'll make sense and I'll be able to to get it but sometimes it just it doesn't click and I just 
I'm the most stubborn person in the world when it comes to learning something new. So sometimes I, I just won't go to sleep at night. Like I'll just stay up until the next morning until I figure it out or I'll spend a whole week trying to figure it out. And at some point it'll click. For instance, um, you know, sometimes it doesn't even work and, and you have to figure out like why it's not working because most of the time when you're in DevRel, you're actually working on like really bleeding edge tech. So for instance, I was actually in the chat GPT Slack for the plugins. Plugins is kind of like a new feature. And I'm in there and I'm running my app and uh, Friday, my app just stops working. So I'm, I'm kind of in the chat and I'm like asking, hey, my app's not working and no one responded. A few hours later, I, I created a video and I posted it up there. It still didn't work. And then over the weekend, I kept trying it and just nothing worked. And it was so frustrating, but I, I just couldn't really, I couldn't go to sleep almost like until I figured it out. And then finally someone chimed in from, from OpenAI and was like, oh, this, it just, it broke and we, we, we forgot to push the fix for it. Sorry about that. And, um, and then I was like, okay, can you fix it? And he was like, yeah. So he pushed the fix and then he said, it's fixed. And I tried it, it still wasn't working. And then I asked him again, I was like, Hey, are you sure it's working? He was like, Oh, well, it looks like it wasn't actually deployed to production. So they finally did that. And then, so, I mean, you kind of have to just do everything you possibly can to get, get it done. And, and, and often that means communication can mean, uh, like really going on Twitter or Telegram and finding the engineers and asking them questions. And then finally, you know, you, you, you get it done and it feels really good once you figure something out because if you're good at teaching, you can often distill that knowledge and make it a lot simpler for other people to not have to go through all that pain and, and suffering that you just went through. Totally. Yeah. It sounds like you ha you need that natural curiosity, like that DevOps mind where you're tinkering a bit. And I think you very much have that. And maybe for listeners out there, if you feel like that resonates with you, maybe a DevRel career could be something that, that suits you. And what new technologies are you most excited about tinkering with? Or would you kind of recommend someone who's interested in this career path to start looking into? I think that um, AI and the combination of AI and blockchain, there's just so much there that is going to be really interesting to see with, with data and data analysis that is more, there's just so much more you can do when you apply AI to it. And it was inaccessible to most people, I think, especially myself. I'm not like a machine learning um, a data scientist. I'm not a Python developer, but these these APIs and these SDKs have gotten so much easier to use that anyone can just pick them up and start using them. So I'm really excited about applying blockchain and Web three principles to and, and and kind of experimenting with AI. I'm very interested in kind of this idea of the Web three stack, and that was something that that at Edge and Node that. I was able to kind of really get started with mainly because you all already had someone researching that and he's off off now starting his own company. But um, but the information that I learned there was like really core to igniting like my curiosity. And, and I'm still really excited and, and interested in, in kind of figuring out what are all the protocols and tools and SDKs that actually work in Web3 and experimenting with those and, and kind of learning which ones that I can use to build out the ideas that I want to build with. Amazing. Yeah. It's super exciting to kind of see the, the decentralized web three stack come to fruition. And you've actually had a very interesting journey, right? In your short time in web three between the graph and Celestia. So kind of core infrastructure and now to lens on the decentralized social media side. So talk to us a little bit about that journey. And then I want to deep dive into lens. This space moves extremely quickly, and my own curiosity also kind of moves pretty quickly. So I'm always interested in kind of learning and, and 
finding out different things. And with the graph, it was a really, really great introduction into Web3 because of their, you know, you all have, and, and when I say you, because you also are part of the graph. So um, even though you're also the podcast host, I'm going to kind of mention that. <laughs> but, um, you know, the the founding team and you all have very, very core beliefs into how Web3 um, like what it means and, and how it actually, what you, the work that you all are doing will kind of lay the groundwork for maybe what it actually means to be decentralized. And that was a really great experience watching some of the talks that were given way before Web3 even became like uh, a thing was really cool to see how far ahead, like you all kind of were with, with all that stuff. So having that experience there was, was really awesome. And the connections that I that I'd made while I was there, you know, really were really great, and I will always be kind of thankful for that. So I think that the the you know the graph is an example of one of these infrastructure protocols that it's almost like an AWS where we were building out services and people could just build out whatever they want on top of them. It's, it's very agnostic to what someone's going to build. Lens is more of like a protocol where you can only build specific apps, but AWS and you know, like smart contracts in the graph are more agnostic. You can kind of like build out whatever you like. And while I was at the graph, I think that um, I started becoming more interested in these niche areas in Web3 that had massive challenges. A couple of those areas, well, there's like five, I think. I've kind of tried to distill or kind of like segment some of these, even though there's probably more or less, depending on who you talk about. But like one of these is scalability. Um, one of them is like UX. You have uh, security, and 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 then you have you know um, different different things like that. So I think with Celestia, I became really interested because they were doing some really interesting stuff around data availability and enabling you know possibly scaling blockchains to be able to be used like a database almost, and um, enabling the types of applications that we're used to using. But in Web3, so like uh, treating a social network, for example, like what we have at Lens, how can you build that in a decentralized way? And during my time at Celestia, I started also realizing that Celestia wasn't the only answer to that, to that problem because I started understanding you know, a lot more what they were doing. And they have a great solution to that, but there are also other solutions. And I think that uh, a couple of examples of that would be like Arbitrum Nova. You also have things like what we're actually going to be releasing soon at, uh, with Lens. And there's different ways to kind of uh, tackle this idea of data availability. So once I kind of understood that, and also at Celestia, it was a really low-level protocol, whereas I'm more of like an application front-end full-stack type of developer, I felt like... I was um, not effective there. You know, I just wasn't helping out as much and I wasn't able to contribute based on my own skill set. And I also, you know, was starting to become interested in other stuff. And there's quite a bit that I was thinking about doing at that point. I was thinking about going and opening my own consulting company, doing like developer marketing and maybe even like software engineering and, and like kind of like uh, an agency type of deal. Um, I was also considering other, you know, roles, but one of the roles that stood out to me a lot was was the Ave and Lens team because Lens is a social protocol, but it's also kind of like a developer platform that front end developers can easily easily plug into. And I've basically been a front end developer either with web or mobile my entire career, so it really was easy for me to understand and pick up. And I'd created a tutorial that when uh, Lens first came out 
was um, really popular and a bunch of apps that are actually in the Lens ecosystem. Their, their engineering, founding engineering teams kind of got started with Lens from that video. And it just made a lot of sense that I would kind of like want to focus on that more. So I ended up leaving Celestia and going and working with Lens and Ave, and that's kind of where I'm where I am now. But I still do experiment quite a bit with other protocols, and I even do a little bit of consulting on the side. Amazing, exciting! And now let's double click into Lens. So Lens is one of the more Web three native social networks. So let's start with why we need a Web three social network, in your opinion. Why why do we need something like Lens? So I think there's a couple of perspectives here. One is the user, one is the developer, and kind of the infrastructure and how the applications will ultimately, I would say, maybe, you know, progress, like the the different front ends, I I guess you could say. I guess we'll start with that. I think that when you think of a traditional application and social, you think of a company that's building the front end and the back end, and they're maintaining everything. And it's kind of a siloed database that you can't really access unless you're, you're, you're that company and you're building out the front end. But I think where Web3 really, really shines and what attracted to me to me the most really was how you can have these open, public, composable backends and infrastructure that anyone can build upon. And therefore, you can kind of think of the go-to-market for something like a social network in Web3 looking a lot different than you might in Web2 where you would build a backend and then you would also build the front end and, and you would be controlling the, the whole stack. But with Lens, we're building and maintaining this high-quality infrastructure, the smart contracts. We're trying to make it easy for people to build their own APIs, and we offer an API as well. And then all the, all the developer needs to do is be a front-end developer. They don't have to, to know smart contract development. They don't need a DevOps team. They don't need a database engineer. They don't need all these different uh, people on the back end. And therefore, they can build a lot more quickly and a lot more easily and experiment a lot more. And then at that point, what you end up having is a lot more experimentation on the front end. You have, we, we already have, you know, dozens of apps, mobile and web apps. Some of them are raising, you know, in the range of like tens of millions of dollars, even valuations, because they're able to really, really focus on just that one thing and do it really, really well. And they don't have to worry about everything else. So having a diversity of clients and applications that might speak to one person or another, all you really need is like one killer quote unquote app to succeed for the whole protocol to succeed. So that's one area I think that separates it. Another one, for, for, again, from the perspective of a developer, is that when you want to build social features into your application, you typically just hand roll everything from scratch. So an example of where people don't hand roll everything from scratch is if you want to build authentication in Web 2, you would just use something like Auth0. If you want to build an API in Web 2, you often will just get a serverless function And if you want to build messaging into your app, you often will just go for Twilio because Twilio and serverless functions and Auth0 are all managed services and you don't have to build all that stuff from scratch. A good example of how like Lens is similar to that is that very very large number of, of users in the world actually are using applications that have social features. GitHub for developers is actually a social app. You can follow other users, you can create a profile, they can follow you, you can see a feed of all of these things. And when you start looking at the most widely used applications in the world, you start realizing that they all have, you know, not all of them, but most of them do have social features. So being able to kind of abstract the way that into its own service also makes it so much easier for developers to build 
uh, social features into their apps that might not necessarily be thought of as social apps, you know, in the past. So developers can just use Lens or, you know, possibly other protocols similar to Lens in the future to, to build out these features. So that's that. And then the last thing for developers is being able to just start with a, a bootstrap user base and not start from scratch. Um, right now we have a hundred and X thousand, maybe 110,000 users on Lens. If you build and deploy an app on Lens, you automatically have like a hundred thousand users built in. You don't have to boot that, bootstrap that from scratch either. So, um, it's, it's a compelling place to, to build for all of those reasons for certain developers. And I think once we remove the allow list, the whitelist uh, portion of how to sign up, it will make it even easier for people to kind of treat Lens as an infrastructure layer. That makes sense. I want to ask one question on the building around Lens. Um, and I also want to get into like what the, the listeners could do on Lens. Um, so first... You know, you're enabling developers to build on top of Lens. How's that been going? And what are some of the more exciting apps that you've seen or maybe that killer app that you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, one of the big focuses that we have is on developer experience. So we're always listening to developers and trying to build out tools and SDKs and things that make it easier or make it lowering the barrier to entry for them to build out the things they want to build. So we now have a React Native mobile SDK that makes it easy to build mobile apps. We've had hackathon winners that have kind of rolled out their V1s using that. We have a React Hooks SDK. We have a BigQuery API that allows people to kind of like take large data sets and build machine learning and AI algorithms and things like that on them. So that has been pretty successful, I think. I think the biggest challenge for me as a developer advocate is getting developers excited about a protocol that is completely like closed off. It's still in beta. So if you build on Lens, you can only have people that have Lens handles use it. So that's that's a challenge. And uh, that's something that I'm excited for us to be kind of removing at some point this year. Um, some of the apps that I'm really enjoying, you know, I think that when you start noticing a habit of yourself doing something different, it's a good signal that like, you know, that that thing is is naturally becoming something that you're doing without you kind of really trying. So for me, I often will just pick up my phone and like, you know, look at a social network and, and when I'm bored. And lately I've been picking up uh, Orb, which is a mobile app for Lens that is really, really good and polished. It's probably, I would say, the most polished mobile app that is just a Lens app. And that's a really great one. So if you're kind of just getting started on Lens, definitely recommend checking out Orb. Um, I just posted a video today on LensTube, which is kind of like a Lens uh, YouTube uh, type of app on Lens. You can upload your, your videos to Arweave. They're there forever. And um, I use that quite often. Uh, Lenster was kind of like the first web app, and it's really, really popular. It's probably the most popular app. So those three are some of the apps that are really interesting to me. And then we have a lot of cool stuff that's kind of like niche. So we have people that are building out like communities, and apps focused at art, artists and musicians and and um, people in the fashion industry. Enzo Collective is one of those. So th there's like a lot of niche communities that are interesting. But for me, the most used apps are probably Linster, LensTube and Orb. Meet Stator Labs, the non-custodial multi-chain liquid staking platform that's aiming to transform the liquid staking landscape. With over 120 million in assets staked, and more than 40,000 users across six chains, Stator is partnered with 40 plus top DeFi protocols like Aave and Balancer. Gear up for the launch of ETHX, Stator's liquid staking token on Ethereum. 
with a unique multi-pool architecture and tokenomics, ETHX empowers stakers everywhere with as little as 4 ETH to run a node and earn 35% more than solo staking. The best part? Stater is committed to keeping their fees low and accessible to users, charging only 10% of staking rewards, so you don't have to choose between cost and decentralization. Sign up for their ETHX alpha list today and be the first to know about 1 million in DeFi rewards. Why did you guys start in the beta, like closed beta phase, as opposed to kind of starting open and permissionless? I think the main thing is that they just didn't have everything figured out quite yet. And the two biggest challenges that are being solved today that we're actually rolling out something when this podcast goes out, which will be, you know, probably be after tomorrow, we'll, we'll have solved the first one, is scalability. Because Lens runs on an L1, I'm sorry, an L2. It, it runs on a blockchain, period. And even though blockchains have come a long way, Polygon, you know, only scales to a certain uh, amount, right? Even the blockchains that are considered the most scalable still are kind of orders of magnitude less scalable than a, a traditional database. And Lens is trying to build the type of application that is similar to what we're used to in quote unquote like Web2. So with Twitter, I think uh, Elon Musk tweeted out there was like 50,000 um, interactions per second during the World Cup. But blockchains, you know, a few hundreds, maybe a few thousand transactions per second is what they can handle. And these are also shared, uh, you know, execution machines. Not only are we using that portion of the thousand transactions per second, but every other app in the world is all kind of fighting for this, for this limited resource. So Lens just did not, did not scale enough for them to just enable anyone to use it because we would either bring down the network or the gas prices would go so high that it would make Polygon kind of unusable. So what we've been building since December, when I say we, the royal we, it's really the engineering team and, and they're really smart and they deserve all the credit, have built out what we're calling like an optimistic L3. And this is a new protocol that has been kind of built from the ground up that will scale in the range of like 25 to 55,000 transactions per second. And this has been tested and tested and tested. These aren't just kind of like random numbers that are being thrown out. It actually does do that. So we're really excited to kind of bring Lens to scale. And then the next thing that we're doing beyond that is we have to figure out um, and, and actually you know, execute on how to do content moderation in the sense of um, if someone bots the network with a bunch of spam, do you want that to show up or not? Now, if you're building on a permissionless protocol, you can't stop those people from you know, doing that. So you're, at the protocol level, nothing's happening. But we do have different APIs that people can choose to use. We have different recommendation algorithms that people can choose to use. And when someone logs into to Twitter and 99 out of the 100 comments on their post or bots, the experience is really bad. So we don't want that, that something like that to be happening on Lens. So therefore, we're kind of figuring out how to make our API that, that people can choose or not choose to use display you know, in, in a way, the, the content that makes it a good experience. And therefore, that's kind of the next phase of what we're doing. And then once that has kind of been rolled out, and you could almost bucket that as like civil resistance in some way, right? Um, it's, a, it's a kind of a, a, a form of civil resistance. 
then then we'll make a permission list because then we want anyone to be able to, to use the app and for it to be a good experience. Amazing. Yeah. And when you kind of when you have a decentralized social media, there there are these things that kind of pop up with this, right? Like the the spam piece and how I envision decentralized social playing out is that you have different protocols at the algorithm layer and maybe people can get paid to create algorithms and then maybe you have a top 10 to 50 list. Same on the moderation protocol. People can get paid to moderate content and like label it in certain buckets. Uh, and then also on the reputation side, how do you think about these different pieces and how are they applying to Lens? Do you think that we'll see those kind of economies and marketplaces spin up? Yeah, we also we already have quite a few teams that are building out their own recommendation algorithms that will be making them available for people to use. In fact, there already is one team that's that's really really good. They have they have team members from like Harvard and a few other like Ivy League schools and that have built and worked in kind of big tech with, you know, success. So like, you know, good solid engineering teams. So that team is already kind of built out something that works really well. And they're already talking to front ends on Lens. And that has nothing to do with us because, you know, they can do whatever they want. So if they want to choose to use their algorithms as opposed to our APIs, then they will do that. And um, we're also, there's also one interesting project where he's making kind of like an NPM type of repository for algorithms that you can choose to, to use or, or not use. And you can opt into them at the application layer or at the uh, the developers can opt into them or allow the users to kind of opt in and choose their own algorithm and everything is like completely on chain and public it's really cool what they're doing there so there, there's a lot of experimentation happening i'm not sure what will be successful what won't be successful but at the at the very base level we want to offer something that is usable and then the, the you know once the developer gets traction they can start optimizing what they're building with some of these other solutions i think amazing super powerful and you know i don't know if you followed but tiktok there was risk of tiktok being banned and they had and the founder had to testify in front of congress and now actually tiktok is saying they're going to start censoring certain content uh, starting with climate change. And so it's interesting because from my standpoint, these tech companies shouldn't be the ones to dictate or decide what truth is. It should really be for the individual to be empowered, to decide what content you can see uh, and what content they want to see, what algorithms they want to see instead of extractive algorithms that are just trying to monetize the users. What's the culture like within Lens around these kind of topics? The culture is very open like we're we're we all have our own opinions about this stuff and there's a lot of discussions and and things that people disagree upon and i think that's really a good type of culture to have because there shouldn't be a person that dictates you know what what is done and what isn't done and um i think that we have a lot of people that are really smart and that come from all different backgrounds which helps bring together an interesting conversations with a lot of different perspectives so it's it's been it's been really great. It's been it's been an awesome experience. I, actually, all the all the work I've done in Web three has been awesome. I can't really complain. <laughs> Amazing. And I guess just on the topic of censorship resistance, because you do it is important, right? If you are being put like if you have the power at some point, either you become corrupted or someone corrupts you or forces you to do corrupt things. So I guess how are you guys approaching that just within the lens ecosystem in terms of like censorship resistance? So at the protocol, there is no way to do for us to censor anything. It's just kind of like how 
you can't you can't stop a transaction from being written to the Ethereum network or whatever. But what what people can do is choose, like we talked about earlier, like which algorithms to buy into and which APIs to use, and maybe even building their own APIs and and basically surfacing the content that they want to see. So the protocol is completely censorship resistant. The the middle layer, kind of where people query, you know, their data from, is going to be the the place that people can either choose to censor certain things or not choose to censor anything. It just kind of is up to the user. It's up to the, the developer. And it's still fairly early in that space. Like we have probably, you know, we have our API. There's a handful of other APIs that people have built that are out there. But um, I think in the next six months, we'll probably see a couple of other like widely used APIs that might differ in how they do content moderation and, and things like that. Because, you know, you definitely don't want to surface. If you have uh, a million people using your protocol, you, there, there's certain things you just don't want to surface, right? You, you, you don't want like um, someone getting killed or something like a video of that in front of some kids or something. I don't know. Like there's a bunch of s- these scenarios that you kind of do have to figure out these things. And, and it should, like you said, be up to the user to choose what they want to see. Totally. Amazing. And then you mentioned uh, Polygon. Let's double click into that. Why the choice to build on Polygon uh, as opposed to maybe a layer two like Arbitrum, Optimism, ZK Sync? So this choice was definitely made before I got there. I can only kind of speak to you know what I understand about their decision. And with, with Polygon, it is kind of more of a trade-off between decentralization than maybe something like uh, Arbitrum or Optimism. I think it's more of, you know, kind of like a sidechain. Um, and the trade-off there is decentralization a little bit. You know, we have the, the trade-off, I guess, was less expensive transactions. Maybe, I don't know if they're faster or not, but maybe less expensive transactions um, because the the number of transactions that are being processed on the network today you know, it's very expensive, but the the new infrastructure we're rolling out still uses Polygon, but it's around, I think a thousand X or so more scalable. And also around, uh, actually around 700 X uh, is kind of more of the number I think that, that is, is, is correct. And around a thousand times cheaper than directly being on Polygon and, and kind of alpha here, because again, this isn't going to be released until after the announcement. Uh, the general idea is that only things that need to be on chain or on chain in the sense of like being on an actual blockchain, everything else is still stored in a permanent immutable um, decentralized network. But unless it needs to be tokenized, it isn't actually on chain and on, on the Polygon blockchain. And therefore we're able to say, if you want to comment on a post or you want to post a tweet or, or something like that, that's not, that doesn't really need to be on chain, then it doesn't have to be on chain. Um, and then if someone wants to collect that or if someone wants to mint that into an NFT, then that would go on chain. So the technology that, that's enabling this under the hood is Arweave and Bundler Network. Amazing. That's great that it's so uh, crypto native. And then why Arweave over like an IPFS? Basically, um, you know, IPFS has a lot of complexity that's built on top of it to enable this idea of permanence. I think you have to have Filecoin and, and all this other stuff. But the the nature of, of our weave that separates, I think, from IPFS, and I learned this at the graph, <laughs> um, got intro to our weave there, is, you know, that our weave is, uh, in addition to offering immutability, which they both offer, our weave promises the, the permanence. 
And that obviously depends on the protocol existing, you know, and the technology working as the founders say it, it will. But it has it's it's worked really well, I think, for a number of years. So I don't really see that being an issue. So uh, our weave offers permanence, and that was the reason that it was chosen. Totally, yeah, I think that permanence is the product market fit that our weave has. It's super interesting. And then, are there any other notable aspects of the lens infrastructure that maybe are centralized today that still need to be decentralized? Maybe around the gateway side, the proxy side. I think right now decentralization is very much a journey, and would love to kind of understand those components, and then also how serious lenses around decentralization. So the, the entire API as it exists today is, is just centralized. So that's that's everything there is centralized. But we do have plans to decentralize that down the road. And uh, I think that once we figure out, once we roll out the new infrastructure, once we figure out the actual high quality um, filtering of, of users and things like that, and once we solve all those challenges, that's kind of going to be when we start moving more into decentralization. We also want to support the graph protocol um, on Polygon, and, and I believe that's coming very soon if it's not already there, maybe. Um, and then once that's available on the decentralized network, we want to support that. That way people do have an option uh, for decentralized uh, API if they, if they would like to use that. Amazing. Yes, Polygon coming soon. Uh, and then describe the unique mechanisms of Lens on chain. So maybe around the profile, comment, mirror, collect, monetization, follow, et cetera. Yeah. So, I mean, there's for the users, we talked about like some of the reasons why a developer might build on Lens or some of the, the reasons that Lens exists as opposed to a traditional social network. But one of the reasons, and this is just one of the reasons, but one of the reasons that users are using Lens is because it does have built-in monetization. It has built-in payments. And you can do a lot of cool stuff that just hadn't been done before. So one example of this is being able to just attach a dollar value to a post and allowing people to collect it. And this is a way to kind of um, show support or to you know support a creator just like you have in the past. But it's a little different than what we've seen in the past, though. Because in the past, like NFTs were typically thought of as these like high value things that are thousands of dollars or even hundreds of dollars or whatever, and they're out of reach. Maybe for the average person, 99% of the people in the world are not going to be spending $1,000 on like a digital asset. But when you have hundreds of thousands or millions of people using a network, it isn't that big of a deal for someone to spend 50 cents or 25 cents or a dollar to support someone. And having native payments built in means that if you click a button to support someone, that money transfers directly from your wallet into theirs. There's no you know, middleman. Obviously, this is all like crypto native stuff. And what we've seen is people doing things like um, one person quit their job to work on a Lens app full time and they posted a $2 collect and they had $30,000 of revenue that just from a post that said, hey, I'm quitting my job to work on Lens. You can support me for $2. Um, we had an artist that released a, a song that they had written in 2017, like six years ago, for a dollar or two on Lens. And they were like, hey, this is just one of my older tracks. You know, if you want to support me, you can collect it for $2. I think he had around $3,000 of collects. So people are um, using on-chain and crypto-native um, features to enable this sort of thing that just isn't possible. You know, again, these payments go directly from one user to the other, no middleman. So cool stuff like that is kind of where a lot of the 
the the reason the blockchain is is part of it as well. And then you know the 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 profile itself is an NFT. So when you create a profile on Lens, you have all of your publications, all of your comments are kind of all attached to that NFT, and you can then have a little bit of ownership over that. So you can transfer it, you can burn it, you can sell it or whatever. So that's kind of another on-chain tokenized aspect of it. Super exciting. Yeah, it's interesting to see all of these new ways for content creators to to monetize. I love TikTok. I'm on TikTok. Well, yeah, I love certain aspects of TikTok. I like making content there. And I think what I see there is a lot of content creators really chasing brand deals. And that's really the only way to kind of make a lot of money on TikTok. And so can you change, can you talk a little bit about how Lens and, and Web3 Social is changing the landscape for how content creators can think about monetization beyond what you already shared? Yeah, we actually have like a bunch of different teams building stuff and, and we've had one or two six really success stories where they're already again fundraising because they've had a lot of success and a lot of usage in this exact kind of space. One is Waves. Waves allows you to uh, boost your content and pay creators and pay influencers directly through the platform. And what it looks like is this, let's say you have a new campaign and you have a $1,000 marketing budget or even a $100 marketing budget and you want to reach a million people. Um, in the past, you would go to Facebook and you would kind of segment all these things, which was great, but all that money was going to Facebook. Um, what we've learned, you know, in the last five or 10 years is that a more effective way is to actually find someone that resonates with that audience and pay them and partner with them and like, let them kind of bring in their own, their own audience. So you can do those sorts of things using on-chain information that's available directly, you know, through Lens. And you can set up a campaign with Waves where you can say, okay, I have a thousand dollar budget or a hundred dollar budget. And for this publication, you have to be following this user. You have to um, be, you have to have at least a thousand followers. You have to have all these different things. But if you do meet, match these criteria, if you share this publication, then you'll receive $10 or $5. And anyone who is kind of uh, wanting to, to participate in that campaign can just click a button and they get the money directly into their, their account. You get the, the reach that you want. So imagine a thousand dollars where you're paying ten dollars per per share to people that have um, at least ten thousand followers. For example, you're kind of reaching a million people with um, somewhat of a limited budget, but they're also segmented people that you want to reach. And uh, that's just a kind of an example of some of this stuff happening. Amazing, super exciting. And what else needs built in your opinion? Like what can maybe listeners who are interested in building in the Lens ecosystem, what, what should they be thinking about? I think that there's a lot of opportunity for these different um, machine learning algorithms for recommendation algorithms that will be able to almost bring new experiences to people that, that just aren't there right now. So I think that's one big area to kind of um, explore. Also, apps that are not just direct clones of kind of what we're used to in Web2. And um, we're starting to see a little bit more of that. And that's really promising. But, you know, if you have an idea of something that that is like crazy and different, then consider just building it exactly like that. You don't have to kind of follow the, the rules of what people have done in the past. And um, building maybe for like niche communities that will get really, really excited people using your app, even if it's not a massive number of people, just bootstrapping that initial 
user base is really important. And you can often do that by focusing on some type of niche community. Totally. I think your point of not building clones from Web 2 is super important because if people have Web 2 and it's functioning well, they're likely not going to switch. So you want new use cases. And we talk about this on The Defiant a lot, but with Bitcoin, a lot of people thought the killer use case was payments. But Visa does a pretty good job at payments. So that really wasn't it. It was more about store of value. So I think that's a really good point. Uh, and then also um, on your point around the machine learning piece, can you chat a little bit about what you envision that future to look like? Could we double click there? Yeah, for um, for the machine learning stuff. So I think that AI and, and machine learning with the newer APIs and, and different tools and SDKs that are accessible to kind of like the average developer, they're good at certain things. And one of those things is, taking data and kind of making it understandable or taking data and explaining it uh, and condensing it and, and maybe taking um, an idea and making it easier to kind of, I don't know how to explain it, but but for, for an example, one thing that we're seeing uh, that people are doing, and we're actually experimenting with a little bit uh, at, at Lens is building database queries using AI. So if we have an API that exists, let's say for instance on the graph, how can we kind of take natural language and, and turn that into a query and make it to where you have a lot more flexibility for the types of queries that can be given that maybe um, the average user couldn't have constructed themselves because they're not like a, you know a programmer. So um, when you type in, I want all of the users with the last name R, then you can kind of like turn that into an actual database query using GPT-3 or one of these other like hugging face models and stuff like that's kind of what I'm thinking of, honestly. And um, another good example is that someone built out this, this app that takes all of your feed for the last week or so and then condenses it into kind of like a highlight reel. And it does that using your preferences and what you've liked in the past. So if you've liked this or that or that, it kind of takes that into account. And then instead of having to log in every day, you can kind of log in once a week and see all the things that have happened in your network. And you're kind of saving a lot of time. So those are two pretty cool use cases that we've seen so far. Amazing. Thank you. And then let's chat a little bit about the data availability piece you mentioned. You know, one reason I'm excited about data availability is because I think for a social network to really take off in a decentralized way with, you know, the, the TPS needed, you'll need something at like a data availability layer. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the thought process around building your own at Lens versus using an eigenlayer versus using a Celestia? Yeah, I think that Eigenlayer and Celestia are just not quite there yet in terms of maturity. And they were also, they also maybe would not be suited exactly for what we need. We already have been using Bundler Network in a lot of areas. We've been in very close contact with their team. The, their scalability you know, has been proven and tested by us and by a lot of people for a while now. And they're also making it more and more scalable and you know, they're increasing the throughput. So with the growth that we hopefully are going to see and, and have, we want it to be somewhere where we can kind of be confident and have experience with that already. And um, the APIs and stuff for Bundler are really simple to, to use and understand. So it just made a lot of sense, I think, for us to kind of uh, go that route. Are we like like we we talked about? It's been around for a few years, um, hasn't had any issues in terms of resiliency. 
So um, that combination was just was just really compelling. Super interesting. And then, you know, it's super impressive to me, you know, as a founder in this space to watch you all execute on Aave and Lens, which are two kind of different protocols. Can you talk a little bit about that execution on the senior leadership side and, and how you go about executing at the level you do? So I've been with Aave about six months now, but most of my focus has actually been working with Lens. I think that with Aave, there's actually a lot of work that's done through the Aave DAO because it's now kind of a decentralized you know, community that's making a lot of decisions. Aave, the company, receives like a grant and we do certain things, but, but a lot of the work is kind of done through the DAO. So the combination of it being a very mature protocol that's been around for a few years, DeFi not being my strongest suit, and my excitement and also the need for a lot of um, attention to Lens. I haven't spent as much time, honestly, like on, on, on Aave, but when, we're, when we launch the Go token on uh, Mainnet in a couple of months, then, or a couple of weeks, I don't really know the exact timeline there, but whenever that happens, I'm gonna be spending a lot more time and I'll probably kind of split up my time 50-50, but I would say right now I've spent about 80 to 85% of my time on Lens. Okay, and what's this Go token you speak of? Is that the native token to Lens? Oh no, Go is a, the stable coin, a stable coin that they'll, that we're going to be launching. Yeah, got it. Okay, interesting. And then what about a token for Lens? When will when will that happen? I'm not really uh, able to. I don't I even personally have any visibility in it to it. But even if I did, I'm not able to to comment about that. So yeah, fair enough. Uh, and then can we talk a little bit about the competitive landscape? I know there's at least like four major competitors from like Farcaster, which are former Coinbase uh, team, Nodester uh, built out of the Bitcoin ecosystem, if that's the right way to pronounce it, Blue Sky from Jack Dorsey, and then Orbis from Baptiste. Um, how do you kind of think about these and, and the differentiations between them and Lens? So I think in the past, there's been kind of this winner takes all type of uh, scenario because, you know, with how network effects are and the valuations that you kind of seen from these these different um, applications, that, that that's kind of what people expect. Oh, there is going to be one winner. Uh, I think instead it's going to be there's going to be multiple protocols and, and applications that people use that they like based on you know, their own personal preferences, because there's going to be more of a diversity of what's out there. So I think that a lot of the ones that you mentioned will probably all succeed. Some of them may, may not, but I don't think that it's kind of this, I think we're moving into an area where like you only need like a few million users to, to be successful or a few hundred million uh, or a few tens of million, as opposed to in the past, you needed the billions. Um, because even Twitter is like hundreds of millions of, of users. They're still not profitable, but I think that um, with re-engineering and rethinking about how they, the, these protocols are built, you don't need that many users to make it sustainable. So I'm, I'm hoping and, and thinking that that's kind of going to be more of like where we're headed. Like there's these niche types of social networks or these smaller social networks that can succeed and be viable without needing to have uh, hundreds of millions or even billions of users. Totally. I think that's actually a really good point. Because if you look at something like a Microsoft or a Google, in order to have a sustainable product inside those companies, you need to make about like a billion dollars minimum for it to survive. And we've seen so many great applications with users die because they don't meet those expectations. And in this ecosystem, in this space, what we're enabling is 
you know, deploy once, live forever applications that can survive with even just hundreds of users if if that's all that they have. So I think that that's a really important point. And then talking numbers, so it's early days, but can you tell us a little bit about what the metrics on Lens look like? For the number of, of users, I think it's in the range of around 105 to 110,000 users. But what we found is that a, a a decent percentage of those are bots or fake accounts or people that kind of are airdrop farmers types of people. So I would probably cut that number maybe personally in half maybe. So I would say that there's probably in the range of like 55-ish thousand real users on the network. Um, for actual other numbers that are just outside of the that, I can kind of give some information. So for March 2023, I'm kind of looking at some of the most recent numbers there were around $31,000 in uh, fees that were paid to uh, creators on, on the network. Um, average of about 19,500 daily active users. And for actual like number of applications, I think it was in the range of a little over 100 applications either being uh, used or being developed that are medium to high quality. Amazing. Super exciting. It's great to see that ecosystem really flourishing. And then what's the best way for a user to get their profile up and running within the different apps on Lens? So that's probably the biggest challenge right now for people wanting to, to use Lens. We are rolling out a very, very, very straightforward process, though, in a couple of weeks. You can go to lens.xyz and look out for that update. You'll be able to just click a button, sign up, get on a wait list, and we're going to uh, allow this you hopefully in a short amount of time. Um, until then, there there isn't like a straightforward way to get on. Most of the time, people have gotten on by attending a conference and getting a POAP or attending just a conference and getting a LAO listed because they had the Denver ticket. Or maybe if you're a developer and you wanted to build on Lens, you reached out to me. You know, there, there's ways to get a profile, but it's not that straightforward. Um, the the two-phase process for us to make that better is the new, just uh, easy to access waitlist on our website. And then in the future, there, there will need to be no waitlist at all. You just go and you sign up. So um, I would say keep an eye out for that update on our website. Amazing. And then what about developers? How can they get involved? So developers, you don't need a Lens profile to build and deploy even to mainnet. You can just jump straight into our documentation. Docs.lens.xyz is where you'll see all the SDK documentation, the APIs, everything there. If you want to get inspiration for what types of apps are out there, maybe even just play around with some of them, lens.xyz slash apps. We have around 100 or so apps in Lens that we've showcased there. And then if you are a developer with a great idea and you're a good builder and you want to maybe get some help building on Lens, we have a grants program. We're still giving out grants in the range of $1,000 to $15,000, depending on like what your idea is. And you can also see that on lens.xyz. Great. Thank you. And then Peter Pan, yes, on Twitter asks, what's next for you? So what's next for me? I mean, I'm still here. I'm still excited and building um, on, on Lens and really excited about some of the updates that we have coming out. I'm still experimenting with uh, Chat GPT and GPT plugins. I'm still doing stuff on the side with like Gitcoin Passport. It's kind of interesting to me right now. Um, I'm a big fan of some of the modular ecosystem still. So I talked about Celestia, but Fuel Network is pretty cool because they've kind of built out this entire like integrated stack from the programming language to the developer SDKs to the client set SDKs. 
So it's kind of like if Ethereum started over and they decided to build out the entire developer stack, that's really cool. So Fuel, um, Bundler, and Arweave, we talked about that quite often. I'm still big fans there, and I'm always playing around with new stuff there. So there's like a lot of new database technologies that are being built on Bundler and built on Arweave. Amazing. And then the Gitcoin Passport, can you double click into what that is? Yeah, so Gitcoin Passport is kind of the only solution that I know of right now that's accessible for for everyone to use for civil resistance. That doesn't require some, you know, for instance, WorldCoin, you have to kind of be scanned into that system with the orb. And a lot of people don't like that or, or whatever reason. Also, you have to literally have been to where that is. And if you kind of make that a restriction for using your app, you're kind of eliminating 99% of the people in the world. So Gitcoin Passport is just a way for you to verify your um, unique humanity in a privacy preserving way. And it uses a bunch of different things. You can choose to opt in to off chain stuff or only on chain or both. And you can get points for having donated to uh, Gitcoin grants. You can get points for having um, an Ethereum address that's like a certain amount of age. You can have points for having an ENS domain, all these different things. And then all these points add up to a score that people can then use to determine whether or not you're a real human. And we've had forums that we've put out for Lens that have been botted. Half a million people signed up within a few hours. And obviously those aren't actual people. They're just like bots. So like if you put something like Gitcoin Passport in front of that, then you have this huge firewall eliminating like, you know, I think in the range of like 99 plus percent of bots. And even though it isn't going to reduce, I don't think a hundred percent, it does a really great job of kind of like just getting, getting through that initial hump. So, um, they they released a new API recently, and, and that's kind of why I've been diving into it because the old API was like really really bad. Their SDK like was really 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 bad. So the new API is it's actually pretty nice. So I would definitely recommend checking that out. Amazing, yeah, proof of humanity, no iris scanning. So that's pretty cool, and it's yeah, it's so important in the age of AI where AI is making songs and art and Twitter posts. You know, you never know if you're dealing with the human or not. So super exciting. I'll, I'll check out Gitcoin Passport. And the last question is just how are you defiant? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I think that being in this entire space in, in some way and like staying here and sticking and being and continuing to be excited um, with all of the different challenges and stuff, we're all here to kind of together in, in a sense. I think that's that we're all kind of defiant in, in that way. But um, beyond that, I don't really know. I mean, I, I do like to speak my mind on, on, on Twitter and on social media, and I'm not a huge fan of kind of the, the very, um, I would say, non-nuanced takes that you see on social media, and I often kind of speak up against that. So if people are, a lot of people just like to say things that are black and white, when almost all the time there, there's more of like an, a gray area there. And often that is a very toxic type of attitude to have. So I like calling those sorts of people out sometimes. Amazing. I love that. And I also love how you are kind of your full self on social media. A lot of times you'll get, you know, suggestions that you should niche down and only talk about one specific thing. Can you talk a little bit about how you've approached that? Just because I'm, I'm interested. I mean, I just follow. Yeah, I think I just follow my curiosity. And I think that there's so much cool stuff to, to be curious about. That again, learning about stuff, sharing that in public, learning in public, I end up being fairly diversified around the things that I'm learning. 
So I've spent years building web technology, years doing mobile, years in cloud. Now I'm in Web3. So I kind of have this diversity of experience that maybe makes it easier to kind of speak to and, and be um, able to pick up other things as well. So that's kind of just who I am. Amazing. Love it. Okay. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was a great combo. Thank you for having me. Uh, hopefully we'll bump into each other at an event soon. Totally. Cheers, Nettie.